After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton. And, oh guys, we are doing more of the fabulous Hot Docs at Home Festival coverage. Uh, I'm so excited to have our guest on today. She is the most remarkable documentarian. She is, a, uh, I believe, an activist, a human rights lawyer. Am I wrong? Human rights lawyer? Yes, for for. for in my former life, yes, I was a... <laughs> but that's so, still, that's a major accomplishment, and obviously the intelligence signs through. She's already on the show. Let's just say hello to Michelle Stevenson. How are you, Michelle? Hi, hi. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for giving me the time to talk about our film. Thank you so much for joining us. So the film is called Stateless. It is, of course, playing as part of the Hot Docs at Home uh, Festival. It just won the special jury prize in the Canadian feature documentary category, and it is well worth it. It's really something special. So once again, Again, the, the entire festival is going to go live May 28th, and you can find out more about that at Hot Docs. So, Michelle, you are not new to documentary film. How did you end up uh, involved specifically with Stateless? How is this your your newest film, and wh- why did you decide to go with this well, one? Well, coming through Stateless, you know, that's my island. I was born in Haiti um, to a Haitian father and a Panamanian mother, and we migrated to Canada when I was eight years old. So I have a personal connection to the island. And growing up, we, I would always hear about the politics of race and class and uh, color hierarchies that existed on both sides of the island. And uh, I was just coming out of a very personal film that was 13 years in the making called American Promise. And uh, that same year we were finishing our community engagement work in 2013, this significant Supreme Court decision came down in the Dominican Republic denationalizing specifically Dominicans of Haitian descent and over 200,000 people overnight had invalid birth certificates. And so for me, hearing about this and talking to my filmmaking and life partner who we work together in film, um, thought about, well, this is, what can I bring to this conversation, both on a personal level, but also with my skill set, and decided to um, embark on a journey to to talk about and tell the story around uh, statelessness, um, the anti-Black racism that exists on the island, and uh, through you know my particular diasporic lens. And so I traveled there about three months after the decision and started to do research with connections to people that I had from the past, both on both sides of the island. Now, I'd like to talk about the two subjects, if you will, of it. There's it, there's a number of people in the film, but the two kind of main focuses you have are on the nationalists, uh, whose, um, uh, I guess, spokesperson within the film is Gladys Feliz. Uh, and then you also have a lawyer and a politician uh, named Rosa Iris Dendomi Alvarez. I'm sure I pronounced that incorrectly. And so you're really showing two sides of the story, the nationalists, who are very much, we want to keep the Dominican for the Dominicans. Uh, and then you have Rosa, who are like, well, these are Dominican people, and they have just lost their their citizenship through a legal process. Um, how did you find these two women? And why did you decide to focus on both sides of the story instead of just focusing on one? Well, so so just to dial back a little bit, I, I do feel the story in some ways is Rosa Iris's story. And we hear yes. Gladys's voice um, intermittently with specific experiences that she shares with us and points of view that she shares with us as kind of a response to, but also 
for me, so there are two things. One, Rosa, I came acquainted with through the movement uh, for, for the rights of Dominicans of Haitian descent. There are many groups working and have been kind of on the ground trying to change not just laws, but attitudes about Dominicans of Haitian descent, as well as attitudes against you know, uh, uh, migrants, Haitian migrants in the Dominican Republic. And so through that movement, I had done some work in the past that focused on Dominican-Haitian collaboration. And through the people that I knew there, I reached out to them uh, in 2014 and they connected me to Rosa. And when I met Rosa, it was like clear both in terms of uh, her commitment, her energy, her presence, and her uh, willingness to be vulnerable were really kind of sort of magic for me as a storyteller. And so we developed a relationship and we shared her experiences and decisions that she made over the course of three years. Um, and Gladys, for me as a Haitian Canadian uh, woman who um, identifies as black but is very light skin, um, felt that going into uh, that island, I really needed to challenge myself and be in these uncomfortable spaces that maybe would open up to me more easily in terms of really expressing their hatred. And so I interviewed and spoke with a lot of different nationalists as I was trying to find what voice could really work for us to understand not the, the just not just the depth of the complexity of these obstacles that exist and the, the level of hatred that exists. And so I was collaborating with some field producers down there in the Dominican Republic, who are uh, Dominican, and um, they did a really amazing job um, helping me um, connect with Gladys. And Gladys wanted to tell her story. She was very adamant. I had actually very little need to ask very many questions because she <laughs> was, she had, you know, this bully pulpit, this platform that she was going to take advantage of, you know, for a long time and for me it was very difficult um you know um she didn't really know um, knew that i was of haitian descent in this process um and kind of connected with me on different levels and really kind of expressed these uh thoughts that were very painful uh for me and it took me every time i would spend time with her you know i i i i, I it, it was a, um, a practice of mindfulness, <laughs> meditative mindfulness and self-awareness in terms of not intervening or being too uh, instinctive in my reactions, but then really letting it all kind of hang um, when I would be back in the, my hotel room and kind of processing the, the level of hatred. And it was, um, it was uh, emotionally kind of uh, draining, but important because in the same way, what I realized also with Gladys is she, um, you know, what she says and how she says it, she could be my neighbor, she could be my aunt, she could be my great aunt. And I think that is part of what we have to deal with when we deal with hatred. Sometimes they are the person across the street. And so um, understanding, you know, the many faces of, 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 of hatred is key to being able to um, connect with those who are resisting against it as well, to understand what the stakes are. The universality of the story is so poignant, especially now as we're dealing with like a whole new renewal of uh, white supremacy just popping up. And I mean, it, that it's happening in various diasporas all over the world of we have created these hierarchies in our heads of lesser than, better than. And it's so it appears to be random, but obviously in people's heads, there's become some sort of uh, sorted order that they have come up with. And uh, what, something I really loved about the documentary was, as I said earlier, I didn't know anything about the um, the Haitian 
Haitian Dominican issues. I didn't know any about this, anything about this. So to learn more about the history, and uh, there's a beautiful little uh, succinct opening um, credit roll where they explain, or where you and your team explain exactly what has happened over the years to lead to this point. And then as you lead us through the actual story uh, of what's happening to these people, the echoings that we're hearing from all of the people who live in the Dominican and and Haiti, they are saying things that we're hearing in the news that we're hearing our neighbors say, we're hearing Americans say at one point, someone says, we're going to build a wall. We need to build a wall. Like that's something we haven't been hearing in the news over and over again for the past four years. And I, I, I'm so glad you made this because it is one of those, yeah, it's not just a problem in the United States. It's not just a problem in Canada. It's global, these these thoughts. Yeah, I mean, so so I don't think it came from a, like, of, I, I, I'm totally owning the fact that this is a diasporic and a Haitian diasporic, Haitian Canadian diasporic lens on the situation. Um, I think what I'm, what I was most intent on wanting to kind of like convey is really the lived personal experiences of those who are most kind of affected by this. I mean, Rosa introduces us to her cousin, Juan Teofilo, who is stateless. And we follow the trajectory of her attempt for him to get papers. So we could really get like this window into the very um, intimate uh, price that he, both he and Rosa face and that the movement face, you know. And in, in connection to Gladys, understanding that she could be my aunt, but also understanding how how intense the hatred is and the fact that people like Rosa to this day are still, you know, their lives are at threat, their lives are in danger. And so the context, we wanted to give as much context as we could without being overly didactic, you know, or overly expositional because then you lose the emotion because um, it's, it, it's not an essay, it's a story. It's a story with, you know, uh, uh, some level of transformation by our protagonists that they face. And in some cases, really kind of a, a tragedy to a certain extent. Um, and that was what was front and center in our minds to connect from the emotional perspective, the films that I do, the body of work that I have always connect from a personal emotional kind of uh, vantage point to really, um, create the relevance for anybody, you know, and this idea, this other idea you mentioned about how there are universal, you know, the negative here is very universal um, through the nationalist movement. And in that sense, understanding that, and I think the reason also to kind of take this, the lens that I did take is understanding that, you know, that island or what is going on there is just a microcosm. It's not unique. It's not unique to the Dominican Republic. In fact, it's just another expression of these different experiences that are all under this umbrella of this global white supremacy that is really kind of dictating uh, our fate. I mean, even in the United States, where I'm, I live in Brooklyn right now, they have created a denationalization department where they're taking away the citizenship rights of naturalized citizens. So it's not that far <laughs> from our, our our existences and our stories. And I wanted to I want to bring it back to the word lens just for a second here, because of course you are making a film, you are making a documentary, and the moment anyone is observed, they start to change. So when you show up with those cameras, now do you do any pre-interviews before you go? Like do you go meet the people, hang out, have a cup of tea, uh, or do you just come in right away with? Uh, cameras, microphones, and and start from there and engage with people. Um, and how do you see people change when the cameras turn on? Well, no. So so the, my practice is always uh, uh, has always been about uh, creating connection without the camera first. 
in some right. ways, when the camera is off is more important than when the camera is on, because that's when you start to build trust. It's when you start to build vulnerability and with trust comes the willingness to be vulnerable, but that only happens through human to human connection and contact. And so we invested a lot of time before, uh, uh, before um, um, turning on the camera. And yes, there were a lot of pre-interviews, there were a lot of just hanging outs and understanding and, um, and connecting and with Gladys as well. So with everybody on, in, in, in the film. And so for me as a practice, it's really important that that, that collaborative connection happen before we turn on the camera because then the camera becomes just an extension of the relationship. And you know, cameras always change what happens. There, we can't ignore it. There's, there's I, 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 a camera, anything. I think there's a, there's a law in physics that once you're observing or being or observing something or, or actually being in a room changes the dynamics right away. And so with the camera, yes. The question is how much trust have you built beforehand so that the effect that the camera has hopefully remains, for lack of a better word, authentic or true at least, or, 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 or vulnerable, or we reach a point of, um, of uh, common human uh, relevance, right? So I think that that is what we try to seek, understanding that the camera always changes the environment. It changes the story, there's no doubt. Do I have an example of that? Well, I think with Gladys, it's the most obvious. Like she was on a mission to show, I'm going to show you I need to show you where these illegal settlements are and you're going to bring your camera and we're going to make that point, you know, and I'm going to show you this and that what we realize, And I don't want to reveal all the film because I do want people to come to our screening our online screening at hot Doc between May 28th, I think in June 24th. So I won't reveal it all. I'll just leave a little cliffhanger. She does take us places, but it's surprising, you know, the level of denial that happens when we see that. I'd also like to know about what you think of documentary as a medium for change. Now documentary is, I mean, I think in the last 20 years, we've really seen this beautiful birth of, of understanding documentary as an incredible, powerful force uh, in our society. Um, how do you see it? Do you, do you feel that sort of change or do, how do you feel like wielding that power? Oh, that's a difficult question. I think the documentary field now, there, there, there's... I've kind of built my career mostly in the United States and we, we see how the documentary field represents, kind of uh, replicates hierarchies of power and structure in terms of who has access to more funding, how you know people who um, are more uh, economically kind of sound are able to go out and tell the stories. And for me, that is a hurdle that we have to kind of overcome. Um, Many of us are juggling more than one kind of occupation to tell the stories that we want to tell. There is certainly a lot of potential in terms of the impact. I believe in storytelling, creating connection, because especially now we're in a battle of narratives. It's the different narratives that are that are vying for access and influence. It's not the facts necessarily. So how do we build our narratives so that there is a large kind of uh, uh, access and connection. And it requires very labor intensive community engagement work that goes beyond the regular marketing, you know, uh, tools that exist. And so um, it's important for us to realize that impact, not just to tell the story, but invest in community engagement plans and ways of getting to 
the level even of community screenings where we can create greater resilience within the communities. The other thing that I feel is important when we talk about impact is impact in the process and the practice, not just in the audience, right? Who is behind the camera? Whose story is being told by whom? And how are we access the community? How are we accessing the communities for whom these stories are most relevant? And I think that's still um, a very complicated answer. I think um, in Canada as well as in the United States and all over. So how do we not replicate the power relationships that we are critiquing, you know, in our stories? And that requires an intentionality day by day. How do I build my crew? How do I combat the stereotypes and create complicated representation in these, uh, uh, in with the people's lives that are in my hands as I tell these stories, you know? And how do I acknowledge whatever privilege that I own in the storytelling process? And, and how do I mitigate that, you know? So if we look back at history, documentary form itself is an extracted mode. You know, from the nook of the north, that wasn't a reality, right? That was a yeah. contrived space to bring to white audiences on how supposedly, you know, um, the Inuit uh, uh, communities live. And I have to kind of sometimes question how extracted am I being in this process for who and for whom? And so I think we really need to ask those difficult questions so we don't replicate, you know, the oppressive uh, structures that. Um, that make us up, you know, and that we're critiquing. And especially when the passion and the emotionality and the art gets yes. in, because there's always interpretation through art and it has to be open to interpretation. Yes. How do you, which is what separates documentary from journalism. They're two completely different things. How do you then express that as, well, this is my impressionistic version of how I'm seeing the world through this thing in those Absolutely. ways. Absolutely. And I like to challenge myself also as an artist and a storyteller and think about how do we, you know, how do we challenge the conventions in the process? Um, because, you know, that's, that's what we're doing. There's, for me, fiction and nonfiction in terms of storytelling are kind of two sides of the same coin. We just work with different material, you know, different, you know, um, uh, works with uh, material. Yeah. Now, before we started our uh, our conversation today, you had mentioned that you were doing outreach with Stateless, and obviously, outreach outreach is a very big part of this. Uh, how can people be part of that, and what sort of uh, what sort of materials are you are you generating for that? What's going on? So, uh, I just this morning we did our first sort of community engagement brain trust, where we brought people from different sectors of society involved, both in anti black discrimination but also involved in issues around statelessness from the Netherlands to other parts of the United States to Canada as well as uh, from the Dominican Republic and we sort of like it was a couple of hours of just brainstorming and see how can this film help the movement and a lot of the things so far that have come out is the need for education the need for people to understand what does it mean to be stateless but also to create connections and especially now during the time of the pandemic you know uh, certain groups are, 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 are being even further kind of um, um, not just marginalized but hit really hard uh, so how do we bring that into the conversation so this was just the beginning of a longer kind of planning a phase where we're going to see you know we're going to develop a plan along with our broadcaster we have broadcast in the United States with POV uh, American Documentary, which is a PBS uh, documentary program, and we're actually now still looking for a Canadian broadcast right now, and in the process of that. And so we're working with POV to develop a curriculum guide and a discussion guide, and also really looking at what are the different communities that we can reach uh, with the film, and even with just excerpts of 
of the film um, to create not just greater awareness, but also support those who are still uh, on the ground um, in their work. Thank you so much for that, Michelle. Once again, the film is called Stateless. It goes live May 28th as part of the Hot Docs at Home Festival. Go to the Hot Docs website to learn more about that. And you're going to want to watch it. And you're going to watch it with friends because you're going to want to talk about it afterwards. My poor partner had to deal with with me being like, we need to talk about this. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And uh, it was wonderful. So there was good times in our house. One thing Uh, I did want to add, sorry, that I did not add is the first step people can do is certainly go watch the film. through hot dogs, there'll be a pre-recorded Q&A with myself and the protagonist, but also through social media, we're very present, either through the NFB social media, uh, uh, Twitter handle at, uh, at the uh, NFB National Film Board. We have a, a Facebook and a, um, a, a Twitter handle, uh, Stateless, as well as my own, which is uh, my own uh, Twitter account, which is Michelle0608. So we will be, we'll be posting information. Uh, and uh, about uh, where we're headed next. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Uh, So I got to ask you the two questions I ask all of my guests. The first one, of course, being, what do you think Canada needs more of in order to support its artists? Nice and simple softball (laughs) to lead us out. Well, this is an extension of what I mentioned earlier. I think that Canada needs greater diverse representation, both behind the camera and in front of the camera in terms of the stories that we tell. I would like to see, you know, uh, uh, more of that happen. I think there's a, it's, it's, it has started, but it would be great to see more of that, both in terms of uh, uh, racial and gender and uh, other, you know, um, identities. So greater representation behind and in front of the camera. And then the last question, which is the fun one, is there a film you love, be it documentary or fiction, that is Canadian you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Well, I recently watched a film that I absolutely became passionate for, actually ended up showing it in my class. I am a professor of a film at the Film Conservatory um, at the SUNY Purchase. And uh, the film Brotherhood, which is a Tunisian-Canadian short fiction film, that was actually nominated, I think, for an Academy Award last year. I absolutely fell in love with both the director's vision and how the stories were told and the intimacy and vulnerability that these um, um, characters represented. It was a brilliant, brilliant film. I don't know if you've had a chance to see it. No, I've heard about that one. It's been on my list for a while because it sounds bananas. So thank you so much for, for bringing that one up. We haven't had a chance to talk about it on the show yet. Thank you so much, Michelle. This was an absolute pleasure. I'm excited for people to see Stateless and uh, take care over there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving us the time. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.